This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. Sydney and New York are buzzy places for young creative people. These are the settings for Jessie Tu's book, A Lonely Girl is a Dangerous Thing. Welcome, Jessie. Hi, Jan. How are you? <laughs> Great. Look, your character, Gina Lin has had centre stage in these cities at a very young age. What was she doing? She was a violin prodigy and she was touring the world um, with her mother and her teacher named Banks. And she was a child prodigy from 6 to 14. Why she stopped is part of the story. But now at 23 years of age, she's back playing violin. And through her eyes we get to see a symphony orchestra. It's easy to listen to, but it really sounds like hard work being part of an orchestra. Yeah, it is. And it's a world that a lot of people outside of the classical music industry um, don't know about. It's, it's a very small world, I suppose. And um, it, it's something that I really wanted to investigate and kind of bring, a, bring out through this character who is sort of navigating whether or not because for a musician, it's, it's, a, it's a very different thing to be part of an orchestra than to be a soloist. And she's trying to struggle um, to find out where she is, belongs. Being part of a team. But that team, but, they really do get work up an energy and work up a perspiration in the concentration that they give. There is mention of why there are so many Asian faces in the string area, but it's the clarinet players who come in for some caning. What's wrong with clarinet players? There's nothing wrong with them, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> I think I just wanted to um, put some humour into the sort of different types of people who are drawn to different types of instruments. And mm -hmm. I think I wanted to play around with that ideology. That's all. Yeah, it was just humorous. Well, I, I, I love that you gave the tuba player these words. It's like that pretty, polite girl who is always in sensible shoes and smiles and laughs at everything, but it has absolutely no personality and no opinion about anything. That's the clarinet player. <laughs> and then there's composers. Now, Jenna sort of looks as she's known many composers and she sort of thinks, hmm, overemphasising the beat, moving their torso too much, I often watch the face more than the baton, but these men follow each other. Same faces, same gestures, same sounds. Jenna is quite critical of how older white men write the music and it's always that music that gets chosen to play. Your sentiments too, Jessie, too? I think so, yeah. I think, I mean, I have so many conflicting emotions about classical music because... You know, it, it's inherently excruciatingly beautiful, and yet it also also has this overwhelmingly disparate this disparity of representation that it's historically just been a space where white men have been able to express themselves and have been able to be given a platform of a specific you know reverence and type. And I think I wanted to just question that through my character and really ostensibly question you know other wider, broader questions in regards to art and who has power, who has recognition, who has value and worth in our society. That comes along quite strongly. And I, I want to 
was good to read. It really was good to read to be challenged. So from classical music to sex, Jenna has sex with a visiting conductor. Why? <laughs> um, I think she felt that was a way to make her mark with the with the conductor i think she mm. knew that she had so, uh, sexual credit and currency that he didn't and that she knew in a way that perhaps that was what he was looking for and so she thought that was a way to weaponize her i guess her you know asset as a young sexual woman mm. to get what she wanted but inevitably you know she doesn't really find what she wanted no the sex with him was a bit of a letdown to be honest yes so what kind of sex does jenna enjoy that's a question that she still doesn't really resolve i feel in in across the book she's trying to discover she doesn't really actually ask that question of herself like she doesn't see sex as something um, necessarily in the pursuit of, you know, a hedonistic lifestyle. It, it was more that she felt sex with men was a way to feel validated and seen and understood in a way that she felt she thought was the only way to appeal to people in power. And then the people in power in Jenna's world have always been white men. So why did Jenna become so sexually orientated? I would love readers to formulate their own responses to that question. It's an interesting question. I wanted to try and write to that question using this character. I think I haven't really resolved the reason why she uses sex. So almost like, I guess, recklessly, I would say. She started when she gave up the, uh, the violin, the soloing, the um, being on the spotlight. She had to find something else to fill that void. And mm. sex seemed to be sort of something that she could do, but she didn't really know much about it. So I think you have a line in the book. She had to build an identity of my own, and I have the boys to thank for it. So it was those teenage years of looking at just that. And, and as, you, as she sort of sees that sex puts her in a spotlight again, she's desired she's wanted she's filling that void left of fame and mm -hmm. and another thing she as her ability in sex grows she's empowering herself by initiating sex and uh, even as a young girl she had that journal the land of dicks <laughs> yeah i feel like i wanted to really explore the ways in which Models of female accomplishment and female happiness have always actually tended to benefit men and have always tended to be written and scripted by men. And I found that this girl, I wanted to write a character where a girl found, thought that she was playing by her own rules, but actually wasn't, wasn't really. Like she didn't have the resources to ask the proper questions of what she really desires. Like this whole idea of desiring and who desires and who teaches you what to desire, I think is deeply political. And it's something that I wanted to examine through the character of Jenna. What made Jenna such a remarkable violinist was her obsessive compulsive desire to practice. And she's, mm. she's taking that skill through to sex as well. Now, I don't want to set this to sound too heavy, so I'm going to get you to read from 
page 11, pleads Jessie too. Page 11 from A Lonely Girl is a Dangerous Thing. I go back to scanning the shelves. I can't find what I'm looking for. Non-latex, ribbed, scented, citrus, large. I find a salesperson nearby. Do you have those large non-latex condoms? He looks at me as though I've asked him to take his penis out. There's sort of a reddish pink box. The salesperson pretends to not be phased, but he is phased. I have phased him. I'll ask my supervisor. He walks away, then doesn't return. At the counter, I pay for two boxes of vegan condoms, three environmentally friendly tubes, a morning after pill, and a box of contraceptive pills. The pharmacist asks me to fill in a form for the morning after. I count back the hours since I'd last had sex. The condom had broken while the man was inside me. Now I am here as if it is my job to clean up the mess. (laughs) Yes. Well, Jenna's desire for so much sex and porn and masturbation I just wonder whether you want to shock me as a reader because of Jenna's gender and ethnicity. I don't know if shock is a word. I never deliberately set out to write a salacious, provocative book. I wanted to see myself on the page. Um, I'm not saying I'm Jenna, obviously, but I think what I wanted to do was really set in stone on the page through the English language, um, through this language that I've acquired, you know, because English is my second language. Um, I wanted to really dismantle the ideas of what an Asian woman and what she wants looks like, because I feel like in the Western culture, we don't really have any complex representation of Mm. women, of Jenna. Yeah, but you know, then Jenna goes along, she meets Mark, and Mark has a fiance called Dresden, and she calls Dresden the perfect Asia. Yeah, because um, we have in the Western world such a narrow and sort of reductive image of the Asian woman, right? Like she is compliant and submissive, subservient and accommodating, very sort of like gentle. And I think I wanted her to be there to use as a contrast, I suppose, to challenge people's ideas of what an Asian woman can look like. Mm, yeah, and it, it, you did that beautifully, <laughs> Jessie, too. The title, mm-hmm. A Lonely Girl is a Dangerous Thing. So why is she lonely? And here I'm going to get you to read a little bit from page 143, please. I wonder if there is any way out of this loneliness. If there is a wall I can scale. I wonder if my mother has ever felt this, the lingering, vicious emptiness. I want instructions. I need someone to tell me not to feel this way and then maybe I will stop feeling this way. And then let's jump to page 227 because she has another feel. We get from your writing another whole idea about loneliness. I've always thought my loneliness was some irreparable failure. Maybe it was not a failure to acquire friends, lovers, company, companionship. I had all that. I have some still. But then I see a couple holding each other on the street and I'm reminded of what I failed to accomplish as a woman. Look, you've written quite an incredible character here, Jessie of Jenna. So who are her friends? There's Olivia. 
she has her best friend Olivia, who also plays the violin. And the two best, uh, the two friends she lives with, um, Mike, uh, Mike and Jacob, who are a couple, who are artists. And then she also meets Val. Olivia. She ends up having, Jenna ends up having sex with her boyfriend, Noah, which causes some angst and a text to Jenna about her need to reevaluate her morals. And as you mentioned, there's Val, who is an artist. And Jenna questions Val when Val thinks that she might have to sleep with a man to get exhibited in New York. And, you know, Val retorts with dignity. Since when did you care about that for yourself? And so you sort of see these friends sort of coming in and, and supporting, but, you know, they have their, their lines. Jenna strives in auditions and sexual encounters. Every time I get what I want, the thing that I want loses its power. That's another line from the book. So everything seems to be coming to the best at an audition with the New York Philharmonic. But then it's 2016 and there is an election in America. I don't even think you actually mention the name of the president that comes in. No, I don't think that was necessary. No, it doesn't. But you, you get that whole feel about the, oh, the hurt. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So we learn a bit about her mother and a bit about her father. Her sister, Rebecca, we never really meet. Did you write yeah. that out? Or did you, did you ever, was, was Rebecca in another draft somewhere or not? She was, yeah. She was a bigger character in the first couple of drafts. But um, in the end, she didn't carry enough literary weight I suppose and she didn't have enough meaning to contribute in Jenna's life for her to. The only thing that I think she contributed to Jenna's life was leaving a laptop open so Jenna learned about porn. <laughs> yeah yeah totally. <laughs> now you mentioned this you've published with Alan and Unwin it's a debut novel congratulations for getting such a Oh, well, I'm going to say a raunchy, but very interesting book with them. How did you oh, do it? I sent my manuscript to an agent and she did the magic work. <laughs> I'm not surprised. Yeah. Yes, it's not surprised. Jenna Lynn had a public life as a celebrated violinist and a private life as a raging sex addict. The how and why is told fearlessly in Jessie Two's A Lonely Girl is a Dangerous Thing by Alan and Alan. Thank you very much, Jessie. Thank you so much, Jen. It was nice to chat. And now it's time for David and his book. Anxiety can be debilitating, especially if we cannot share our concerns. Tom, the protagonist in Luke Horton's The Fogging, suffers from panic attacks which not only compromise him physically, but impact on his working life and on his relationship with Clara. So, Luke, welcome to 3CR. Thanks for having me. Your description of Tom's panic attack is compelling, and I'll just read an excerpt here. He breathed, sweat sprouted, he sopped it up as it came, and after some time, after 20, 30 controlled breaths, counting down from 
10 between each inhalation and exhalation and throwing in the mantra every now and then and then for good measure he shivered his heart rate had slowed the pit of his stomach which before had vanished and been replaced by a terrible dragging sensation as if each time he inhaled the air escaped back out through a stomach that had been slip open was back his blood had withdrawn from his skull tom's life is completely overwhelmed by attacks like this one of the things I wanted to capture in the book was the way in which the logic of anxiety doesn't really exist, that there's not really any kind of rhyme or reason sometimes about why it's worse sometimes and, and better at others. It's got so bad for him, I guess, at some point that he has seen specialists, he's, he's gone to therapy, he's taken um, some antidepressants, but he's also the kind of person that's just been trying to ignore it for most of his life, I guess the academic world in which he lives, which is a precarious existence to say the least, so there's uncertainty there, but also then having to face students, which causes him to break out in a sweat, basically. Yeah, it's impossible to avoid how crippling it can be for him, and he has to sort of face that, I guess, in situations like that, exactly when he's teaching it's compromising um, yeah. him in many ways. In some ways, then, is the very antithesis of masculinity, the significance of this character who is out of control and uh, having to sort of fulfil male expectations in some ways. So were you addressing this subject of masculinity at all? People in response to the book have, have said quite strongly quite a few times that it's about masculinity or certain forms of masculinity and I guess that it is in terms of the way I approach the story and the writing of it and the creation of the characters and everything I was very much more following my nose in the sense of what was interesting to me about these characters what was interesting to me about the situation they were in who these people were and kind of discovering that I didn't have any kind of agenda beforehand or even particularly, um, you know, stated aims or themes I was going to pursue, really. And so then, you know, what it ends up being about is sometimes as big a surprise to, you know, the writer as it is the reader or whatever. Like, you know, it's not something I've, I've been thinking deeply about, masculinity. His partner you know, is Clara, a fellow mm, academic, but mm. we never really have her perspective on Tom how would yeah. you describe their relationship and its evolution? Yeah. Yeah, so the technical challenge was how do I get enough of Clara in the book if the if the whole point of the point of view, which is Tom's point of view, is that he doesn't really know what's going on with Clara and because of his own self-obsession or self-preoccupation, uh, he's kind of blinkered to the things that might be going on to Clara. He fails yes. to see where Clara is. They've travelled to Bali for a break after some 10 years and yeah. they meet Madeline and Jeremy and their son Ollie and interestingly yeah. enough there's a sort of change in dynamic that occurs between the relationship uh, that Tom and Clara have there's a shift there is a fogging in some ways fogging sort of becomes symbolic here the fogging yeah. takes place now what exactly is the fogging in Indonesia, where they've gone. 
Yes, so you're right. I mean, it obviously becomes a kind of metaphor metaphor for other types of ob- obscurity, you know, and miscommunication and things like that in their lives. But the actual literal fogging is a thing that they do in resorts in, in Bali and Indonesia and, and other places as well, where they spray pesticides, basically sort of out of a big machine that pumps out big clouds of, sort of smoke or um, fog and um it covers all the trees and the and the plants through the grounds of um, of hotels and resorts. And if you didn't know what was happening, it looks a little like the resort might be on fire. And they do that to kill mosquitoes. But in this case, yes, Clara gets caught in her room while they're doing it and hasn't been told about it and doesn't know what it is. Interestingly, yeah. here then, it's Clara that becomes anxious and Tom who seems to be more in control or less disturbed by that event. It's a pivot point in terms of the communication between Clara and Tom. It could have quite easily triggered a panic attack in Tom, but he's out on the beach when it happens and he looks back and he sees it happening and then he gets an explanation from somebody nearby. And so for him, he's like, oh, yeah, they're just doing this thing. It's nothing to worry about. But for Clara, she is stuck in a room while it happens, she has no explanation for what it is. And then she comes out of the room and then she's just lost in this fog. Um, it's through all the hotel grounds and she does various things to try and get out of it. She goes upstairs to a bungalow and it's up there as well. And she tries to lie down thinking it's um it's rising up in, into the air. If she lies down, it'll be less toxic down there. Then she gets up and she runs through and she finally gets out to the beach. And so she's had this awful tra- traumatic experience. She comes to Tom all panicked and stressed and traumatised and upset. And Tom, when he isn't feeling his own anxiety, actually can struggle to show empathy and sympathy to other people um, in the way that perhaps he's supposed to because he sees anxiety in other people and it makes him reflect on his own anxiety and he's repulsed by that anxiety and he can't be perhaps available to people in the way that he should be emotionally. What happens is they don't examine each other's anxiety or the reasons behind that anxiety and so their communication is compromised. Yeah, so there's these kind of silences between them. And what happens then is there's another narrative that's working its way through this novel and that is Tom recounting past experiences, their travels together previously where there has also been periods where there was a lack of communication between the two. So there's this constant thread of miscommunication and missed opportunity through the novel. Yes, that's true. You know, he's on holiday and they don't take holidays. You know, they're middle class people that have tertiary educations and are university lecturers, but they're sessional and they uh, live from semester to semester. Yeah, so they go to this hol- on this holiday to Bali and it's the first one they've ever really taken. And it triggers all these memories for him of the only other time they've really spent overseas, which was um, 10 years ago. And they went overseas and went through Europe and America for 10 months. And so he's remembering all the things that happened there. But it's also a time for him to reflect on the, his relationship with her and how things sort of came to a head last time they were traveling as well. And they had 
uh, a period where they stopped talking to each other or she stopped talking to him and they effectively broke up and went separate ways and then joined back up and everything was okay again. But she is someone that has, sort of goes through periods of silences and he has never been good at broaching that. Or interpreting that silence yeah. as a problem. This then actually adds to that metaphor of the fogging because it's not just that single event and that uncertainty of communication that occurs, it seems to be that we're almost living in a fog constantly because the nature of the relationship you've described between Tom and Clara sort of drifted and came together and fell apart and came together and their whole lives seem to be uncertain in a way. Yes, I mean, I guess in some ways I'm trying to get to the the ways in which a lot of relationships, I guess, are based on sort of you know, illusions and um, half-truths and guesswork and all sorts of silences in, in all relationships. So on one level, I was trying to get to just that sort of ordinary miscommunication that everybody has in their relationships to some degree. And then I guess I was exploring how anxiety further complicate relationships and how they make relationships and communication in them even more difficult and how people especially with Tom he's trying so hard to pretend everything's okay with himself with anxiety and that kind of pretending um, extends to his relationship and he just wants everything to be okay and so he um, you know he um, yeah he's always sort of um, struggling yeah. to find uh, an answer and, and to actually see the reality around him. Luke, we're going to have to end the interview there, but thank mm -hmm. you very much. The novel is called The Fogging, the author Luke Horton, and it's a scribe publication. So thank you very much, Luke. Oh, thank you, David. Thanks for having me. Well, Jan, that takes us out for another week. And look, more books to read for next week, more authors to chat with. Despite the travails of uh, coronavirus and such like, we will do our best to keep bringing you more authors next week. See you then. Well, let's Bye. talk then. <laughs> <laughs> You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR.